Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. There are three different types of radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma. What does this technology do? It's like, well, what can you do with electricity? I just survived 30 years HIV positive. I'm certainly not going to let a little thing like a brain tumor derail me. When I got to 29 pounds, I was so tired, I just collapsed. Everything always goes back to being grounded and centered. It's a mecca for cycling, for sure. Struggle is the neutralizing force. And I said, there it is. This is the right family. I'm, I got like cold chills. And it's one lone oak tree right in the middle of the trail. It's beautiful. Hey everybody, welcome back. I hope you've had a great week since the last time that we got together. I'm really excited to bring you part two of my In the Company of Friends talk with Brooke Applegate. If you'd like to listen to part one, it is episode 33, just before this one. And if you missed it, be sure to give it a listen. Brooke has some fascinating stories from her travels around the world, as well as lots from my favorite city, Los Angeles, where she's an urban tour guide. It's also jam-packed with information on the children's workshops that she runs at the Los Angeles Arboretum, and so much more. So be sure to give it a listen. Brooke is a museum educator, has a degree in anthropology, a deep thinker, a traveler, So that makes her knowledgeable in various and sundry subjects, some of which we're going to cover here that are really fascinating. We're going to talk about bugs, connecting with kids, Victorian death customs like the postmortem photography, Victorian hair jewelry, as well as dinosaurs. (laughs) You cannot go wrong with dinosaurs. I think they're amazing. Um, But I think one of the overarching subjects is finding joy, finding the things that make you happy and hanging on to those things and really bringing them to life. So please grab a cuppa and join us. This is a live recording. So the quality of this recording is not as good as some of my other recordings. It has a little bit of that nostalgic vinyl sound to it. going to hear some pops and a little bit of hissing here and there. So just be prepared for that. Grab a cuppa and join us in this part two in the company of friends talk with Brooke Applegate. Hi, Brooke. I happen to be sitting next to her too. (laughs) Hello. It's so good to be here. Brooke made me this amazing breakfast of vegan chicken and waffles and we had some mimosas and strawberries and cherries and like some really good conversation just before we started here so you're currently and for a really long time you've been doing some really awesome things in your life you're a director of education a tour guide of honestly one of the greatest cities in the country los angeles a traveler, a gatherer of friends, a conjurer of fun and whimsy. And you literally seem to walk around with your finger on the pulse of what is the essence of delight and wonder. I'm just wondering what influences your perspective on life and where do you get your daring inspiration from? (laughs) It sounds cheesy, but honestly, my parents... And specifically my mother. My mom was a non-professional whimsy maker and I don't even think she realized that she was doing something so unique and magical but she stayed at home with us until I was eight and I am just one of these very rare and lucky people who had a genuinely magical childhood. I mean I had the childhood that every every kid should have. And obviously, adolescence was difficult, you know, challenges came through once we came of age, but the years that it mattered, the years that imprinted on me, I I had access to genuine magic and that was my reality. So somehow, and, and I guess the how is a longer conversation, but somehow I've been able to keep that channel open into adulthood. Um, 
But yeah, my mom would, I'll give you a perfect example. Every single holiday, my mom would add some sort of magical touch to, right? And again, I don't even think she realized she was doing something so special and unique. I think she was just enjoying motherhood, right? I think she was creative and she was enjoying motherhood. But like this one St. Patrick's Day, me and my two brothers and I sat down at the breakfast table and there were bowls on the table with dry cereal in them, which I thought was a little bit odd, but I was like, well, but it's a holiday, so she's doing something special for us. So <laughs> we poured milk into our bowls and it came out of the curtain white and it came up in the bowls green. Oh my God. And we thought, holy shit, the leprechauns were here. <laughs> so every St. Patrick's Day, we would find gold scattered around the house, right? Or we'd find gold in our lunch boxes when we got to school. Which was like rocks my mom had collected and spray painted, right? But that particular morning, I had <laughs> I had woken up and I had pulled the covers off of myself, and there was gold in bed with me. What? And so at that point, I was like, "This is definitely not my parents. This is clearly the leprechauns because like it's in my bed." Right. You know. Of course, my mother she pulled the covers off of me when I was deep asleep, but. <laughs> <laughs> For me, even when I got to an age where, like, I kind of knew my mom was behind it, it had zero impact on how magical it was. So much so that, like, my mom still makes Easter baskets for us, and we're all 40 and above, because it's just, it's charming, you know? And adults enjoy that stuff as much as children do. Oh, totally. You know? So... I don't know. I think that, that that foundation is a huge, huge part of it. But my mom had had that in her genes to begin with, so I think there's something genetic about it, too. I mean, my mom is 81 years old and still wants to go out dancing, so... Right, and dresses up in heels and, and always in glitter yeah. and looks beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I know that if you are to drive past your mom's house, say on Valentine's Day, the whole front facade of the building itself has hearts on it. It's yeah. ju just strewn across the front. And she's just very festive. You know, the Halloween parties that we've had over at the house, there's always the skeleton. Yeah. But why not, right? Yeah. Like, the world is kind of a dumpster fire. Not just now. Like, it always kind of has been. Regardless of political or social happenings, being alive is so painful. Even if you have the most cake life, it's painful. So why not put hearts on your house? Yeah. Like yeah. metaphorically and literally, you know? Exactly. I think that's one of the things that I've always told my kids is, you know, the one thing that's guaranteed in life is that it's going to be hard. And it's up to you to find the magic in it and make it good. And create that magic. You can't find it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like your autumn dinners that you have, those are always so magical. You have everybody dress up as something that has to do with autumn, that time of the year. And everybody brings something amazing to the table, something edible, great conversation. There's always good music going on. And community, just, you know, that unity of everybody. It is magical, you know. I love the and whimsy primitive. of all of that. You know, yeah. It's primitive. We're tapping into something kind of ancient. Exactly. Gathering, feasting, communing, you know? Yeah. And I think that I think that even if we don't recognize it in the moment that this is something primitive we're participating in, I think on a cellular level, our, our organisms are responding to that drumbeat. It feels kind of like at home, mm -hmm. you know, like you've come home when you go to these gatherings mm -hmm. and everybody's so warm and inviting. And it is, it's that tribal primitiveness mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're hungry for it, whether we realize it or not. Mm -hmm. And I think that ties in with your degree, which is in anthropology, mm -hmm. right? So you're always studying Mm -hmm. social behaviors and drives and what makes people tick mm -hmm. and um, just to add to that one of the best places for somebody who is an anthropologist is a museum I just think that they 
add to as well the entire thread of all of the whimsy and magic that you create because they're full of wonder and beauty and curiosity. And I think curiosity is so important. It's one of our biggest driving forces to be curious about the world. And it leads to such things as happiness and, you know, expanding our knowledge base and all of that. And you've worked at some of my favorite museums, which are the Page Museum at the La Brea Tar Pits, Kids Space Children's Museum, and now the spectacular grounds and campus of the Los Angeles Arboretum. You were also president of Emerging Museum Professionals for a time. Have you always wanted to work in museums? Yeah. When I was little, my parents would take me to the La Brea Tar Pits and they have that fishbowl laboratory. Yes. Where you can look in and you can see the scientists cleaning and sorting fossils. Most kids are obsessed with the idea of fossils for some reason, which would be an interesting thing to research, right? Like why? But I think it gives us kind of a connection. You know, there, there's something taboo about bones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there's also something about them that tells us something existed before us. Mm-hmm. There was a time, a space, an environment that is different from mm-hmm. anything that we ever know. And so you want to participate in that discovery. That's, that's where the curiosity comes and in. And for kids, I think, like things like dinosaurs or giant mammoths, because they're prehistoric and extinct, they kind of exist in the realm of fantastical and fantasy creatures, mm-hmm. but then you have fossils to prove that they exist. So for kids, there's probably an element of it validates the existence of fantasy, yeah. you know? Um, but yeah, for me as a kid, I used to stare in at that, and I can still remember the smell of the tar pits from when I was a kid. And my first day on the job, I inhaled, and I was six years old again. So going to places like that as a kid, going to the Hollywood Bowl, going to the tar pits and stuff like that, they just enchanted me a lot because it was my passport to a much bigger world and my ticket to time travel and all of that. Mm-hmm. Just as a passionate, curious kid, like that just, it, those museums were portals for me. Right. You know? So yeah, I think I always wanted to be a part of that world. To some extent. Yeah, I think that's why, you know, you watch films like Night at the Museum. <laughs> it, it did so well because it's got the excitement, like you said, of the dinosaurs, of the discovery. And, you know, um, I like that historical aspect and just learning and discovering new things. The La Brea Tar Pits, when I was a kid, was definitely up there at the top of my list. It's still um, completely amazing. It's an active prehistoric paleontological dig in the middle of Los Angeles. In the heart. There's no other place like that in the world. There are tar pits all over the world. There's no active paleontological dig that's been going on for almost 100 years now in the heart of the city. Where you can just like, you can be driving down Wilshire Boulevard for a business meeting and then walk into Hancock Park and just see a giant ground sloth femur. You know, that's incredible. It's crazy. It is. Yeah, it it is like walking into a portal, like you said, you know, just seeing those woolly mammoths in that pool at the very front entrance going over to pit 91. Sometimes, you know, you walk through there and somebody or something, I don't know, has trekked through tar and you see it trekked around there. And it's like, wow, you know, how much is down there? And just the fact that they're still pulling up the giant sloths and the dire wolf and the saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths in Los Angeles is just crazy. Yeah, it's wild. It's incredible. And it, you know, it connects us again. It connects us to our ancestors. And I'm not even necessarily talking about our human ancestors. I'm just talking about our earth ancestors you know like other organisms that have shared this space with us and endured life on this planet mm-hmm. you know so it, it it hooks us into the time thread that we're a part of right yeah. right and reconnects us there um yeah you know going into that museum and looking at that dire wolf wall 
It's like all of those got pulled out of Pit 91, right? Um, or, I, or I actually don't know if they all got pulled out of that pit. There are loads of pits around mm-hmm. the tar pits. And at the turn of the century, that's when they were drilling for oil there. And that's when they started, that's when they first started finding and preserving bones. So I'm not sure. What did you do there? I was the manager of education, overseeing youth and adult programs that help to translate the scientific information for the public. So that's what education always is Mm -hmm. at museums, right? They're not the experts in the field. They're not the researchers. They're the translators. So they're the ones that take complex subject matter and repackage it in prose that's accessible to people from all walks of life, right? Because the way you're going to deliver information about dire wolves to a six-year-old is going to be totally different from the way you're going to deliver it to a college student, and that's going to be different from the way you're going to deliver it to a fossil enthusiast who's in town from England. But you're giving them all the same information. You just, you're a translator. Great. That's awesome. Was the next place that you went to from their kids' space... I moved to D.C. after the Tar Pits. That's right. And then when I came back from D.C., I went to Kids Space. But I got my start in the museum field at a tiny Victorian house museum in Glendale because I've always loved everything Victorian. So Glendale and Brand Park, they have this little Victorian house. And on Sundays, they would have docents dressed in gowns that would give people tours of them. And I was always very charmed by it. And then this one Christmas, when I was 19, they were doing their annual candlelight Christmas tours. So a couple friends and I dressed up in our Victorian gowns and we did the tour and one of the docents asked us, she just basically told us we looked so appropriate and asked if we'd be interested in volunteering. So two of us did, Jenny and I did. And um, for me, it was more a matter of, well, I feel like, a Victorian anyway so now I actually get to wear my Victorian gowns and hang out in a Victorian house for two hours so <laughs> that you transcended yes, time exactly right? I got to time travel on Sundays yeah. um, but then the more I started giving tours the more I realized how much I loved that interpretation aspect and because it was a small museum run by volunteers when I approached the curator who was also a volunteer about doing more than just these standard tours and doing this program and doing this special event she was basically like if you want to invest the time in that here's two hundred dollars from petty cash stretch it out i trust you and so i got to just create my own exhibits and my own events how exciting it was incredible because then by the time i graduated from college I had that experience on my resume, which I needed because I didn't go to a fancy school. I didn't have any connections, right? So the museum field is tragically difficult to get into. So if I was going to make it, I was going to have to do it entirely on my own. Right. So that I credit the Doctor's House Victorian Museum with launching my career. Wow. In that sense. That is amazing. That's a rare opportunity and... Um just a great story to let people know that even when you think you can't get in, there's always a way in to getting to your dreams. Yeah, it was magical. So yes, after uh, the page, I ended up at Kids Face once I got back from DC. Mm-hmm. At the time, I was heartbroken and just kind of couldn't see my way through that fog and so I just thought I needed a change of scenery. In retrospect, that was a very small percentage of the impetus. I was 28. I had lived in LA my entire life. I had just one identity and it was time for me to burst out of the bud. I realize that now, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And so the heartbreak was the impetus, um, but it was time. It was time for me to to just go see the world and leave home, you know? I went there thinking, well, with all my experience, the Smithsonian's gonna be really excited to hire me. But it doesn't work that way in DC. DC's elitist, it's wonderful in a lot of ways, but 
in LA, having a degree from Cal State Northridge has opened loads of doors for me because here that means something. First of all, people know of that university. Going to a state school and specifically Cal State Northridge means you were dedicated. You probably paid for it yourself and put yourself through college. You were probably working while you were doing it and you were pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. So it stands for hard work and dedication to, you know, local universities. And good work ethic. And good work ethic. And my CEO at Kidspace got his master's there. But it's it's spoken volumes about me in LA, but in DC, they wanted Princeton, they wanted Harvard, they wanted all of these things. And um, I didn't have any of that. Nobody knew what the Tar Pits was. Nobody knew what the doctor's house Victorian Museum was. I didn't have any fancy connections. There were loads of kids who were working for the Smithsonian doing unpaid internships. Um, I applied over and over and over and over and over and over again to different museums. And just, I would get a few interviews here and there, but never any bites. And then finally, my last year there, I was offered a secretary position at the Smithsonian Castle which wasn't even a museum, it was just the admin headquarters, and I turned it down, and shortly thereafter I moved home. And within six months I had a management position in a museum. Isn't that amazing, the different markets, the different Mm environments, different locations, and just the culture? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, LA LA is known to be snooty as well. But people are wrong. I find LA to be incredibly down-to-earth. And I don't find it to be status-driven. I don't find it to be about who you know. Maybe I just don't live and work and play in those circles, but I'm 44. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been around the city. I find it to be remarkably down-to-earth. And I think a lot of the time when people criticize it, it's people who haven't lived other places and gotten that perspective. Yeah, I think it's very down-to-earth, too, you know. There are pockets where it's a little more elitist, But as a whole, it is a very embracing place. It's so diverse. Um, What was the draw to go specifically to D.C. rather than going somewhere else? I had a cousin on the outskirts of D.C. in Northern Virginia that had a basement and a bed that I could utilize (laughs) until I got on my feet. And uh, New York and Boston did not have those options. I wanted to leave the country. I looked into going to South America. But... um, you know, the visa issues, and I had $600 to my name, and that would have been really risky, mm-hmm. right? So I thought, well, the East Coast is the next closest thing to a foreign country, and I was right. And, <laughs> you know, being able to crash in my cousin's basement for three months until I got acclimated was <laughs> necessary. So that's why DC, it could have been anywhere. I wanted to go to New York. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but the options weren't there. Yeah. How is the um, acclimating to the weather over there compared to here? I mean, it's so much cold. I just always think of the cold. I actually liked the cold uh-huh. at first because it was enchanting to me, right? It's different. Like, snow is beautiful. DC didn't get enough snow for my liking, but I'm romantic, right? And I have this Victorian obsession, so... I remember my first winter there, like being able to wear a proper pea coat and boots and the wind picking up as leaves were falling and I was walking down a cobblestone street. I just felt like my heart was gonna explode. It was so magical, right? Um, I remember my first snowfall looking out my window and seeing it. The summer was abysmal. The summer was so much worse than the winter in D.C. The humidity. The humidity. I just felt like I was going to die every single summer. And I'll never forget, like, <laughs> in winter, like, you know, we just stayed indoors and we dealt with it. But it was charming because we had a fireplace and all of this. But then summer came and I realized, oh, my God, I'm living somewhere where for the majority of the year, I cannot just sit outside comfortably. And coming from L.A., that blew my mind because I thought it was just going to be winter which blew my mind enough you know right it was all year long except for two weeks in the autumn and two weeks in the spring so I just kind of resigned myself to being unattractive for like three months out of the year yeah your face melts off right (laughs) my hair oh yeah I look electrocuted every single day (laughs) 
I sweat a lot. I was just soaked in sweat. <laughs> it was disgusting. Oh, that's what happened when I went to Europe. First of all, Austria and Germany with the rain. Like it just, it drizzled either, you know, for half of the day or it would pour for like two hours and then be humid the rest of the day. <laughs> Every single day I was having this bad hair day. And Italy, we were there in July and you would take a shower and dry off, you know, yeah. soaking wet right out of the shower, you dry off. Five minutes later, you were soaking wet again mm -hmm. with sweat. And it was like, what's the point? Yeah. In DC, it was like you would step outside and drink the air. <laughs> it, it was terribly unpleasant. And you know, people, obviously there's a lot that contributes to social culture. But I honestly think a huge part of why people are more laid back on the West Coast than the East Coast is because they're fucking uncomfortable on the East Coast <laughs> all the time. You're uncomfortable in the winter. You're uncomfortable in the summer. I started getting grouchy because I'm so physically uncomfortable all the time. Oh, my gosh. You know? We're comfortable. It, like, it just feels good to walk outside here. Right. It makes a big difference. Like, you don't have to plan and prepare and, like, like gear up just to walk next door mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. and you know we are so charmed by thunderstorms and and uh, all of these things that happen on the east coast regularly that people take for granted and we just had that great beautiful thunderstorm and we loved it oh so amazing yeah. and you know sophie and i were sitting in the house and she's like is that rain and i'm like is that no, it can't be, yeah. you know. We opened the door and it was pouring and then we, you start hearing the thunder rumbling and lightning bolts coming out of the sky and it's a full-on monsoon and it's like, oh my God, this is glorious. Like, pause the world. We have to enjoy this. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But not so much. I mean, I think a lot of people did enjoy it when it would happen in D.C., but not as much as I did. <laughs> I, I, I remember my friend Bridget and I there's a picture of us, a bunch of us had gone to a, an amusement park and uh, all the rides got shut down because the thunderstorm was moving through and she and I just loved it so much and she grew up in Queens and so everyone else was running to like take shelter as the hail started coming down and two of us just went running out from the shelter. <laughs> Hail, the yes. And there's this picture of us just like smiling like idiots in this hail with this big, burly, tough guy running like aggressively to safety behind us. That's so funny. And I think I've seen that picture. I'm sure you have. Yeah, you guys are soaking wet with huge smiles on yeah. your faces and just reveling, yeah. looking like some photo out of Woodstock or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did you get to see all of like the monuments and everything that everybody goes to DC on vacation for. I feel or... like I saw more at the East Coast at large than most people who've grown up on the East Coast. Because I was... you like to travel, you're adventurous, you're inquisitive, you're curious. And it's so beautiful. Like I literally mapped out every covered bridge that I could drive to. Oh my God, that's been one of my dreams. It's incredible, right? But then people just like drive past them. like. So no, I, whenever I could, whenever I could afford to, whenever I had the time to, I would rent a car and I would just drive to a new place. It might be Manassas because there's a bridge there, or it might be Savannah, Georgia, right? Because it's Savannah, Georgia. So I, I feel very satisfied by my five years there. I saw so much. I just, it was very gluttonous with all of that in the best sense of the word. Mm -hmm. I still have a box just full of every map and every little flyer for every cool historical attraction that I collected during those five years. It was incredible. East Coast is an incredible place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the history there. Mm -hmm. You don't have that depth of history here on the West Coast that you're going to find over there. Just all of the historical happenings, the people that have gone through there. But you're also not shackled by historic mindsets here the way you are there. Like even with progressive people out there, there's this veneer of more kind of old fashioned traditional mindsets and values. And I think it's because you're literally in that terrarium of history. 
That makes sense. I could see that. There is a difference. There's a different kind of sensibility, a different kind of East Coast confidence that I see in my friends who are from the East Coast Mm -hmm. or people that I talk to who... um, I, it's it's not relaxed. It's not definitely not surfer culture, especially, you know, having grown up so close to the beaches. I grew up in the South Bay and school would be over and I'd hop in the car with all of my friends mm-hmm. and we'd go body surfing or, you know, bodyboarding or whatever at the beach and swim with the dolphins that would come through. And um, it does give you being around the waves and the warmth and that kind of company and just being able to play in the water, it just does give you kind of this meditative, super relaxed mm-hmm. way of life. And I could see where if you're constantly having to bundle up or, you know, make these plans, like you said, to go next door, what, what am I going to wear? Or, you know, am I going to melt when I step outside? Mm-hmm. And being immersed in that kind of history where it would give you a completely different perspective of the world. And there's, there's just a lot of focus on status, and I know people say that about L.A., but I didn't really know anything about D.C. when I moved there. I just chose it, right, because it was convenient. So I'll, I'll never forget, like, the first few weeks that I was making friends and, like, going out to happy hours and stuff, I didn't realize it was a thing that the first thing every, everyone was going to say is, what do you do? Like, I didn't, I didn't know D.C. well enough, so it, it was so strange to me. And so I was still looking for work, so I basically would tell people, well, I'm temping right now. And people were obviously turned off by it. Not everyone, of course. I made wonderful friends there. But I remember when I would tell people, well, I left my career and my boyfriend and my apartment and sold my car and moved out here for an adventure. Like, they were very confused by that. <laughs> right. Because no one goes to D.C. for a new adventure. Exactly. Right? People go there for work. So You're right. It was just strange to me because in L.A., I don't think anyone had ever asked me what I do for a living. It would come up in conversation naturally. <laughs> but it was not the social opener. I felt like in L.A., social openers would be like, so what do you like to do for fun? You know, right? Like, what interests you? That's a come on somewhere else, (laughs) right? But here, it's like when you meet people out and about, that's that's what they're more interested in. Yeah. How's your day going? What? So the translation for me is, what what brings you joy? What do you like to do? Right. So what brings you joy, as opposed to what's your work? Yeah. So that was. How do you make your money? Yeah. Yeah, that is a, a direct line to status to financial stability mm-hmm. and also just it's a dc is a very polarized place right so the the things that you can theoretically infer from someone just by gauging their profession mm-hmm. yeah i yeah. had a great time but i'm happy to be back in la yeah yeah la rocks la rocks <laughs> And we have so many amazing places. Before we get off that subject, I wanted to ask, um, before we travel away from D.C., somebody were going to D.C. and they asked you, I'm going to be there for a week. What should I see? What would you tell them? Well, that's, that's so hard. That's so hard because there's so many pockets of magic, right? So if they went there in the summertime, I would tell them to go down to the National Mall and like at sunset with a picnic and watch the sunset behind the Washington Monument and wait for the fireflies to show up. I mean, that's magical, Mm -hmm. right? And there's a warm, balmy breeze once the sun goes down. Or I would tell them to go to Meridian Hill Park for the drum circle on Sundays because it's the one little, like, bohemian haven in the city where you have people hula hooping. And when I say a drum circle, it is the North African community, it is the Lebanese community, and they're just all jamming there. And it's it's the dreamers and the seekers escaping the K Street culture to go and enjoy a little hedonism for an afternoon, you know? But there's everything. I would I would tell them to walk down Swan Street. Just because Swan Street is so beautiful. It's 
cobblestones and turrets and little Victorian homes and yeah, I would tell them to just get like a hot chocolate and walk down Swan Street. There's so much and it's not the White House, you know? It's all of those little things. Yeah. And DC is a, a visually stunning city. People don't realize it, but mm-hmm. it looks like something out of a fairy tale. It looks like a Hansel and Gretel book. It's beautiful. Wow. So. Yeah. Sophie's been there. I haven't been there. You should go. I should I definitely go. For you. Oh, nice. Maybe we can go together. That would be fun. Okay. Yeah. So you had this magical five-year experience and you come back and within six months six months you have a job yeah an amazing job yeah yeah uh i was the education manager at kidspace so my i wore a lot of different hats a lot of different hats at kidspace but ultimately it was working with a team of content specialists designing public programs so professional whimsy maker professional whimsy maker i know you had some like really cool bug oriented um summer camps you did a lot of summer camps right did a lot of summer camps we did weekend festivals and things like that but yes the highlight of my career at kidspace which lasted five years i towards the end i just had the most amazing team of content specialists there were six of us and they were so dynamic and open to cross-cutting concepts and new ideas in my kind of outside of the box way of approaching education. So it was my last year there, I think, and I got a text thread going between me and my six specialists. I had told them, you know, I have our five weeks of summer camp themes planned, but I can't think of a sixth one. I, it's got to be dynamic. So, you know, people were texting back, well, outer space camp or botany camp or this or that. And I was like, no, it's got to be, it's got to be dynamic. So we're going back and forth, and then finally somebody says, what about bug camp? And I was like, no, everyone does bug camp. It's boring. (laughs) And then we started getting punchy, and one girl said, what about band camp? And then somebody said, yeah, this one time at bug band camp. And then it was like, yeah, how hysterical would that be? And it was a joke. Like, instead of band camp or bug camp, it's bug band camp, where all the bugs come to band camp. And I just kind of, like, stayed quiet and let all the jokes start to fly. And then I was like, oh my God, yes, we're going to do bug band camp. So then I told them and I was like, okay, we're, we're going to do that. And they were like, no, we were kidding. And I'm like, oh, no, this is, we're going to do this. This is happening, people. So <laughs> I assigned that particular camp to Samantha Mendoza, who was my education specialist. And it was just, to this day, the most brilliant camp that I've ever been involved with. So basically, she designed it so that each day of the week covered a different decade of music and music culture and a different variety of bugs, right? So I think for like that the Tuesday that was 60s or 70s themed, um, it was all about bioluminescent bugs because psychedelics, right? <laughs> And then on 80s day, it was all about like big hair and bright colors. So it was like caterpillars with spikes and all of this kind of stuff. That is so cool. And every day, like we would introduce the kids to music from that decade and let them build instruments of some sort. And then we'd have a jam session and we'd let them decorate themselves to look like a fusion of bugs from that decade. I mean, it was just, it was wacky as hell crazy education completely, at the same time yeah completely out of the box completely counterintuitive to yeah. what anybody would expect like bands and bugs it, it actually was a like it complimented so beautifully yeah. you know and the kids learned a lot and we finished by doing a music video with a green screen with giant bugs oh my god that's so cool it was amazing yeah it was a good time I remember going to that museum and there is a big giant section of the museum that's dedicated to bugs and big leaves where caterpillars have eaten some of the leaves. Mm -hmm. And I just, I remember that. And it's very tactile, visual, just a very immersive museum. It's, it's probably one of my favorite kids museums Mm -hmm. around. Mm -hmm. I think one other really epic memory was we used to once a year have rubber ducky races down the stream <laughs> that's in the garden um, 
and it was a legitimate competition. The kids would decorate them and then race them down. And my last year there, we decided to add music. We had timed races. Every time a race would go, we'd blast Rise of the Valkyries, <laughs> which was totally lost on the kids, of course, but it entertained the living hell out of Right. <laughs> it was fun. Um, how do you connect with kids? What are um, some of the things that you find that maybe other adults could tap into to connect better with kids? It seems like there's such a big space, you know, we get, we were talking earlier about when we were kids and just kind of finding yourself underneath a tree or a bush or something, or, you know, like some little shady area. It's all of your friends and you're all talking about everything and nobody's judging anybody. And you're just, you're just in the moment and reveling and the beauty of friends and you know like the whole world is right at that moment and just just being just being and then we transition somehow through our teenage years i don't know if it's a hormonal thing that comes in that cuts things off i don't know if it's life events expectations trauma. or you know yeah trauma um or you know this this high value that society has on status and so if you're spending time indulging in those childhood idyllic moments and you know being more mindful and being more present and in the moment you're not chasing status and so you know because you really have a choice you can do this or you can do that but I think science, all the experts have come more and more closely to let us know that multitasking is a myth. It might mm -hmm. seem like you're doing 20 things at once, but you're only thinking about one thing at a time. And you might be able to shuffle through all of them pretty quickly and sequentially, but you're actually only doing one task at a time. And really, it translates to this realization that you have to make choices. You can't spend time being childlike and finding status. Although you've found yourself in this really wonderful niche where you are immersed in childlike experiences all the time and doing exactly what you love doing, working in a museum. But I think a lot of people choose one or the other and they tend to gravitate away from that. Well, I don't think that people need to find that childlike fulfillment in work. You know, I'm just lucky that I get paid to do it. But when I, I mean, temping and being a secretary for five years in DC was absolutely soul draining for me. So I just made sure to chase it even more after 5 p.m. every day, right? You can still choose to be an investment banker for your profession and it doesn't mean that you can't chase your childlike wonder but I think it's I think that people lose that childlike wonder but maybe a better way of saying it is that they're robbed of it right life robs us of it a lot I just again I'm lucky I'm very lucky mm -hmm. that somehow I retained it um I think you asked what's a way that people can connect with children mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think for me it's easy because I'm very childlike. And so, like I was mentioning earlier, sometimes when I'm around the kids that I work with, I feel more like I'm around my peers because they're just focused on joy. And they're actively thinking about how can I be kind and this doesn't feel good and that's interesting. And I think if people can just tap into that primitive side of themselves, and I don't say primitive in a bad way, I think that then you open up a door to be able to connect with kids. Not everyone wants to or has a need to connect with children, right? But, you know, there was a meme that was going around a few months ago about, like, when you're a grown-up, no one asks you what your favorite dinosaur is anymore, you know? I actually do have a few favorites. That's funny, nobody's asked me, but I love Elasmosaurus and, <laughs> and Brontosaurus and um oh my gosh i used to know them all because cameron 
he knew every single dinosaur name and there were some that were my favorites there's the one that's got the spiky collar mm-hmm. kind of stocky mm-hmm. with a horn uh-huh. i forget what that's i don't called. know i that, people always think i'm gonna know about dinosaurs yeah. but i don't i don't do you have a favorite dinosaur i love pterodactyl i do it's the one that's gone through name transitions the past few years i think it was a brachiosaurus at one point okay they were the vegetarians that we would see in the water with the long necks it sneezes on the girl in jurassic park and in retrospect that was my favorite i didn't like dinosaurs growing up really i didn't and i remember feeling kind of alienated from my peers because of it though i just kind of filed it away but only this year did i realize why I didn't like dinosaurs. I associated them with violence and death. They were constantly killing each other. They had these sharp teeth. They were predators, or at least, you know, that's what's glorified. And that was not appealing to me. Yeah, that's what's presented. Still does. Yeah. So I'm still not enchanted by dinosaurs. I think because of Cameron, being a mom of a boy after growing up in a home with you know I have a sister so girls everything was girly 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 and then I have this like ooh, wait trucks I, I don't know what do you uh, like yeah. <laughs> you know um, it was it, it's a journey it was such an educational journey and I got big into dinosaurs mostly because he loved them so much but I'm trying to think if I like them. I think I associated them um, with aggression mm-hmm. when I was a kid. Aggression I was very sensitive to as a child. I mean, my mom will tell you a story of how bitterly I cried even watching cartoons if I saw violence. God, I remember when Frosty the Snowman melted in the greenhouse oh. and I totally lost my shit as a six-year-old, you know? Um, So I was just sensitive to all of that. Yeah. One of the things that we just piloted at the Arboretum. So for so long, when parents have picked their kids up from our summer camp program, they'll see what they did that day and they'll say, oh my God, this looks like so much fun. I want to come to this camp, right? Or I'll post things that we were doing and people will say, oh my God, like I want to come to your camp. So for so long, I had talked to people about doing summer camp for adults. So we finally decided to go for it. And I'm lucky enough to have a CEO who's open to my wild ideas like that. So we planned three for the summer, one for June, one for July, one for August. June, body botany, so like the sex life of plants. July, Jurassic camp, so dinosaur themed because no one asks adults what their favorite dinosaur is anymore. I should attend. And then um, August, the Magic Garden, so kind of the folklore surrounding nature. We sent out an e-blast, and all three sold out overnight. So what does oh that tell Oh, my you? gosh. They People want to be a child. People want to connect to that side of themselves. Yeah. yeah. They want to. They just don't have the opportunity to, because the adult world doesn't provide enough of those experiences. Mm-hmm. You're right. You're right. It's like most people are just getting up in the morning, brushing their teeth, grabbing coffee, going to work, sitting at a desk for eight hours. That's the world we live in. But, you know, then you're mentally drained at the end of the day. Come home, you sit in front of the TV, rinse, repeat. Which is why it's a privilege to get paid to create an experience like that. Yeah, I think creating is really um, soul validating, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it just really validates the human experience. And I think that's one of the reasons why I work in film, why I write stories, why I produce podcasts and constantly like, how can I connect? It's a way of staying connected with the world in a very tactile, mental, physical way, mm-hmm. you know, just validating that your existence matters and mm-hmm. that there are other people around you that matter. And again, it's it's primitive, right? Mm-hmm. Everything on earth is creating something, even if it's creating destruction, like we're, everything is creating something, right? right? 
it's why we're here. Yeah. Yeah. Those are such cool summer camps. You saw me grab my phone to start scrolling through here because I wanted to find the e-invite that you sent out on those summer camps. And I had actually asked Sophie, hey, do you want to do one of these? And unfortunately, I think she was busy on a day that I wasn't. And then we were both busy on the other ones. Part of the joy of summer camp is that you get to make new friends. So you don't have to come with a friend. That's true. That's true. But they've sold out. So are you going to I know the person in charge of them, so you should Oh, sorry. I can can go. (laughs) She may be able to open up the space. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I would love to do one of those. I love the idea that you do make new friends there. How big are the adult ones? Uh, Originally, we had them at 20, but we've had so many people call wanting to get in that we opened it up to 24. So we can have everyone... uh, Three feet apart indoors at 24. Yeah, you have to maintain those COVID guidelines right now, don't you? Um, Yeah, the world's such a different place. But still, despite it, we can still connect. Yeah. We've talked so much about kids and museums. And I know that's not where you spend all of your time. Um, You seem to be able to put together like just these fun, whimsical gatherings that you know you just seem to snap your finger and you gather a diverse group of friends together who often show up costumed and bearing all kinds of delicious additions for the table most people i know spend months just trying to be able to do one event at their home but you seem to be able to put them together how do you get your inspiration for these I mean, I'm constantly joy-seeking, right? I need a lot of stimulation. So I live, I mean, I feel inspired all the time. If I could, I would be doing it every weekend, but I can't. So it's, it's not a matter of finding inspiration for it. I mean, again, if I keep saying this, I'm gonna sound like I'm a negative person, but I'm not. The world, is a really difficult place. So there's that Dylan Thomas quote about raging against the dying of the light. I'm very in touch with how much pain there is in the world. I'm a deeply sensitive person. If I didn't have a stronger constitution, I would very much slip down into a dark hole and stay there for my whole life. I'm lucky and pretty balanced. But I see the shadows all the time, so the shadows are my inspiration to a large extent, right? To ward them off. Yeah, it's like you're fighting against, it's, it's almost like getting a bunch of beautiful people together to drink too much wine and sing songs together in fairy wings. It's almost like our collective way of giving a giant middle finger to the darkness Mm -hmm. you know almost like i mean there there's like ancient pagan magical practices that are kind of based around that concept and obviously that's not where i'm coming from but you understand why those magical practices developed because people thought like i could ward this off with this talisman or with With a celebration yeah the parties are almost again primitive in that way you know but i'm not thinking that intensely every time I throw together a party right. but at its roots I think it's everything could be over tomorrow so let's let's celebrate let's tonight celebrate, you know yeah let's celebrate the good things in life you know it's really interesting because I think you do have to have a very healthy awareness of those shadows like I said my saying that the one thing in life that is guaranteed is that it's going to be tough yeah. um regardless of how well you manage to navigate it. And I think that it's those little sparks of light, those glittering moments, those moments when you do feel joyous and happy that keep you going, that encourage you to get to the next moment like Mm -hmm. that. Um, And it's not that life is just such deep drudgery all the time. But there is a heaviness to it, especially when we're living in a world where the news cycle is what it is now, where you're constantly hearing 
about things going on and um and then things just come out of the blue to attack you and you're just like whoa you know like last night this is this is funny i spent the whole day working really hard on a project and i was just finishing it up and all of a sudden i hear this helicopter and i'm like wow you know that's really low and we're in los angeles the mm -hmm. helicopters are ubiquitous you can't go anywhere without having them buzzing around but this was down so low that my window started rattling and my whole house is vibrating and it starts doing these very tight low circles right on top of my house i start getting texts is everything okay at your place you know what's going on we're you know down the street and it looks like the helicopter's right on top of your house because it's dark you can't really see out into the darkness and you live in this world where it can very easily become arduous and then you've got a helicopter down low you know and i find out that somebody had called the police department and reported somebody and it was really much ado about nothing mm -hmm. um but you know when you're living in a world where you kind of feel out of control sometimes well, yeah to say nothing of the world inside of you like death heartbreak loss or even just like some days i will i will feel the weight of what i know is probably decades worth of different things and i'm just particularly vulnerable that day and I don't even really know why I'm feeling down. But I mean, there's that right. too, right? right? So, and like, just to clarify, it's not, I'm not advocating for toxic positivity. Like, I don't believe in that. Like, these t-shirts that say good vibes only, like, I think that's, that's really toxic, you know? I value sadness that's where all the songs i've written have come from the poetry i mean so much of the beautiful art in the world like the sadness matters we have to honor the sadness and it doesn't mean that everything should be a party all the time and you should just like push away that sad feeling with a costume party feeling the feelings matters but it does it but, does you need the balance but you also need that purposeful sense of revelry and just validating i mean it sounds really cheesy but what an incredible thing to be alive yeah like, one of my closest friends died three years ago like she's gone like when, whenever people don't want to celebrate birthdays i'm just like oh my god you made it like you get to be alive another year you just you get to be alive you have another chance to eat your favorite foods and have sex and go to the beach like you're alive we're here like i know it sounds cheesy but that's that's something to celebrate too it is so it is it doesn't have to be there doesn't have to be a holiday we're alive and if we're lucky we love people that we have people that we get to love like all of that stuff is worthy of a celebration too you know but not toxic positivity yeah it, sure. it doesn't leave any room for you to to learn from those less validated feelings in society yeah. we're just so always have to be happy and i think that creates a lot of negative pressures my favorite exhibit we ever did at the doctor's house victorian museum which was not my exhibit it was curated by the volunteer curator but it was a death and mourning exhibit and i was 19 years old when we were doing it but it even at 19 years old like it spoke to me so deeply victorians had wild customs surrounding death and mourning that today like we would be so freaked out by and we would see it as macabre and dark and creepy and morbid but they didn't see it as those things because death was such a part of their reality you know so many children never made it past toddlerhood so they had to acknowledge it right they didn't have the luxury of toxic positivity and so yes they indulged it which, you know, I didn't live 100 years ago, so I don't know how healthy that was or wasn't, but the habits that we would consider unhealthy today because it would seem too indulgent were just, for them, therapeutic. It was a way of actually honoring what had happened and honoring the, the tragedy of what had happened. You know, like post-mortem photography. Like, 
Victorians, when, when somebody would die, they would dress them obviously and lay them out in the homes. Chances are you didn't have a photo album full of pictures of these people, right? So they would take pictures of them sitting up with a book in their hand, babies. There's, there's loads of postmortem photography of babies. And we had a collection of those photo albums out and we would let people know at the end of the tour, you're welcome to look at these if you want to. Most people didn't want to look at them because they found them very creepy. I thought they were beautiful because loss is probably the one thing that irreputably connects all of us, right? So this is a language that everybody can share. Everybody has or will lose somebody. So to me, death and mourning customs have always fascinated me. I remember in college learning about the Yanomamo Indians and how when somebody died, they would burn their corpse and then take the charred bones and grind them up and brew it into a tea and then pass the cup around and everyone in the tribe would take a sip of the tea and everyone in my class was horrified by this and I thought it was exquisite, you know, and it was a way of keeping that person with them. Yeah, letting that person absorb into their body, becoming one, the spirit. Yeah. So I had no idea how I went off in it. There's so many different customs like that. Well, because we were talking about toxic positivity Um, and and that sort of thing. You know, it was really interesting. I was reading a story about uh, Victorian times. A young girl passed away, maybe 12, 10, 12. And her mother had her grave built with a room at the head of the coffin. Mm -hmm. There's a window there and stairs that go down because this girl was deathly afraid of thunderstorms. Mm -hmm. And so when there was a thunderstorm, the mom would go down there and sit with her daughter and talk to her. Mm -hmm. And those are, you know, you think, my God, that's morbid, but those were customs of yore and they were quite normalized because death was such a big part of that time period you know they didn't have the medicine that we have today hair jewelry yes like we had a collection of hair jewelry in that museum and whenever i would show it to people they would literally shiver they thought it was so gross first of all the the fact that we are so freaked out by hair (laughs) like oh there's a hair in my food oh there's a hair in the back it's hair it's hair that's it you know but the idea of keeping the hair of a dead person and turning it into jewelry that you would wear just blew people's minds i think it's beautiful Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. it just talks to you know that connection the depth the depth of that connection and i have given lockets of my hair a few times when my grandmother died i buried her with a piece of my hair when the cat love of my life died. I buried him with a piece of my hair. Um, when the man love of my life had a birthday, I made him a, like a smudge stick with different herbs and plants, and I wove a locket of my hair into it, too. It's beautiful. It's a mm-hmm. piece of yourself, literally. It's amazing. Things you don't think about unless you're looking at things that other cultures do and understanding the depth of why something occurs. See, those are the things that you get from somebody who works at a museum or has worked at museums that the average person doesn't necessarily connect to. You know, I was just a couple of days ago at um, the California Science Center to go see the Angkor exhibit that is there, which is phenomenal. And I think everybody should go and see it. It's spectacular. And I had the good fortune of talking to one of the docents and we talked each other's ears off about the different exhibits that were there and you know he'd say something and then I'd go oh, that reminds me of such and such and he'd go oh yeah you know and then he'd get into a subject about that and then I'd go oh I read this other thing and he's like yeah you know so we talked for a really long time and talking about you know, specifically there, the people of Angkor, which had abandoned the whole empire, one day they just up and left. But talking about their belief systems and the way that they looked at the world, and they were a bigger civilization than so many others that are out there that have ceased to exist. And it's like, how were they able to build that? And 
what was their perspective and what were the things that they were doing right at that time. And it's things that you wouldn't think of now because we live in such a built-up civilization. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's pretty amazing. As an anthropologist, Brooke is so keenly aware of and sheds so much fascinating insight on some of what makes us thrive as a species. I hope that this episode inspired your interest into going to museums and maybe even elevated your love of them. But most saliently, I hope it's motivated you to proactively cultivate joy in your life and connect with those who foster it. As always, I'll post links in the show notes. So please continue to send me your questions and suggestions. I love hearing from you. And don't forget to take a moment to rate this episode. It only takes seconds, but your rating really does help move this podcast closer to the top of the searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I am looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at the Queen Trail podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E podcast. I am Syl Annan, the Queen Trail. And until next time, I wish you passion, grace, adventure, curiosity, joy, elegance, and beauty.